2: Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I put on my headphones, listen to some great audio storytelling from all around the world and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, a chance encounter with a long-forgotten ex.
3: Tracy's parents didn't want Stephen anywhere near their daughter. Back then he was a wild, rebellious teenager, a DJ with long hair, tight denim jeans and a terrible reputation with girls.
4: Please don't laugh. But my nickname was Horny. I should never have got
2: that nickname, especially when the parents... Then why can't Ben listen to one of his favourite podcasts in his car? The irony of this was crazy-making.
5: Like, 99% visible, a podcast dedicated to explaining the beauty of good design, that is the one podcast that breaks when you try and play it on Ben's Mazda. It just felt like an imbalance in the universe that I had to correct.
2: Having a laugh investigating the otherworldly in this paranormal life. Look...
6: I kissed my wife this morning and left for this job. It's not an easy Too job, but I will murder any man, woman, or child detailed. that gets in my way. Off script. Does that make off me the story. crazy one and they're the sane? Quite possible. I really wish you would. Say but that's that. why they call me Lex this guy, Shotgun. Not his name. Blaster. Bad name.
2: And finally, the soundtrack show looks at the role that music plays in creating the fictional universe of some of our favourite films, from Jaws to Star Wars, from Psycho to Lord of the Rings.
7: You could see the depth of the creativity of what they were trying to create in New Zealand and the passion for it. And I think it was on that very first trip that I decided that I definitely wanted to do the film.
2: And next time you hear something good, do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. <laughs> Have you ever got an unexpected message or a social media notification for a long-forgotten name from your past? One day, Stephen got a Facebook notification from somebody he'd lost contact with 27 years before.
3: In Stephen Lambert's kitchen, there's a bourbon dispenser mounted on the wall, right next to a cork board covered in rock concert tickets. An overflowing ashtray on the table and two gigantic speakers that blast music so loud, the whole house shakes. One of the first things I learned about Stephen is that he loves to party.
4: Always have. That's why I party so much these days. Because you never know when your last one's going to be.
0: Stephen
3: is 46. He lives in the Barossa Valley in South Australia. I met him about a year ago when I interviewed him for this video project in his home. And when the interview was done, we had a drink and started chatting about life and how he was going.
4: I've been 80% happy. Yet the only hole in my life is I never had anyone to love.
3: Actually, Steven had many lovers, including a wife. The thing was, that all felt so long ago, like a past life. He said he's accepted he's spending his life alone, and he isn't sitting around feeling sorry for himself. He's partying with friends, going to concerts, and enjoying his life. Nearly a year after we made that video, Stephen contacted me, saying he had some news.
4: I'd just finished my daily exercises and um, I was doing my normal routine. I'd have my last cup of coffee for the morning and I had two cigarettes. Then I heard my mobile phone go off, that there was a notification on there, and then bang! I dropped my cigarette, my heart was racing.
3: It was a Facebook notification for Community Swap and Sell page, someone posted a list of items stolen from their home. It wasn't the post that made his heart race, though. It was the poster, Tracy Bilby.
4: It had been 27 years since I heard Tracy's name. Tracy was the first girl I fell in love with. She was a girl that I thought I was going to marry, but because we were so young, it was just never going to work at that point of time.
3: Stephen and Tracy first met when she was only four and he was six. They grew up playing together as kids, but when they became teenagers, their relationship took a secret romantic turn.
4: I ended up jumping out of my bedroom window when my mum was asleep and jumping into Tracy's bedroom window when her parents were asleep, and that become a regular thing. It was not getting caught that made it exciting.
3: Tracy's parents didn't want Stephen anywhere near their daughter. Back then, he was a wild, rebellious teenager, a DJ with long hair, tight denim jeans, and a terrible reputation with girls.
4: Please don't laugh, but my nickname was Horny. I should never have got that nickname, especially when the parents...
3: Stephen and Tracy had this intense secret love affair that lasted about two years. But in the end, Stephen lived up to his nickname...
4: Tracy was working at Hungry Jacks. I was driving in my car to pick her up and she was talking to another girl. The other girl said, I've got a boyfriend named Stephen Lambert. He's a DJ. And Tracy goes, that's funny, I've got a boyfriend named Stephen Lambert too. And before they were about to kill each other, I drove past my car, seen them both out there. And so I just kept driving away because I knew I'd been busted.
3: Was that the end of both of those relationships?
4: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And I felt really bad, but I was only young. But um, if she kept hanging around me, she would have got herself into a lot of trouble. So it was probably better we drifted apart.
3: Their secret love affair ended. They grew up and out of each other's lives. Stephen actually tried to look Tracy up a few times over the years, but never found her. But here, out of the blue, nearly thirty years later, she was. Stephen wasted no time replying to her post.
4: Tracy is at you. Been looking for you for a long time. Please make contact.
3: Within seconds, Stephen got a notification that Tracy responded.
6: It's Tracy Milby. Steve,
4: do I know you?
3: He heard it through his screen reader.
6: Stephen, are you from Tisbury Street?
4: Um, I can't believe this. What's your television.: My phone kept going off. Stephen, you have a message from Tracy Bilby. <laughs> I was getting so excited knowing that, you know, my first love was coming back into my life. But she needed to know who she's or how, how I am today, um, uh, that now my body's changed. I'm not the same person that I was 27 years ago.
3: Everyone changes from their teenage self, but Stephen had more than most. Today, he's blind, uses a wheelchair, and can only move one arm freely. And so he wrote to her, check out this video, here's where I'm at in life. And then he sent her the video we made together nearly a year before.
4: Got to line everything up in the exact position. Be able to get myself Nana B.
3: It shows how he lives independently despite his challenges.
4: Yeah, it's extremely difficult, but I have to do it. That's my independence.
3: And then he waited for her response. After Stephen and Tracy broke off their secret love affair 27 years ago, Stephen spent several years partying hard, embracing his nickname, dating lots of women. DJing, travelling with bands, getting up the trouble every chance he got. But eventually he decided it was time for another chapter.
4: I sort of said, Stephen, it's time to do the right thing. Settle down, pull your head in, stop breaking hearts, get rid of horny. (laughs) 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 To be honest, I had a little blank book and um, I was dating five different girls and um, I actually chose one um, that I wanted to settle down with. I had my daughter, decided that I was going to work harder and, you know, be the responsible father and take on my responsibilities and stand up to him, which I did. And then um, my journey of life, I thought I was going to just stay married and work until I was 65, and then my whole life was turned upside down. I'd wake up one morning and my arm felt numb and I thought, well, I just slept on it the wrong way. And um, then I thought normally it would go right away in a couple of hours and I went all day and it was still there. That night I said to my wife, my arm's still numb and I can hardly move my fingers. Then the next day, it was still there. Then I decided to see a doctor and the GP said, I think it's about time we send you to a neurologist. I didn't even know what a neurologist was back then. And in the waiting room, everybody was lined up there in wheelchairs. I was the only one walking. And I just looked at them, I said, that'll never be me. I, I, it never happened to me.
3: How soon did it happen?
4: I've oh, been two years.
3: Stephen was 33 when the neurologist sent him away for some scans. When he came back, she diagnosed him with multiple sclerosis. It's a condition of the central nervous system and it affects people very differently from mild to severe, but for Stephen it would be the latter.
4: There was little empathy from the neurologist. You know, we're in there for 10-15 minutes and then bang, your life had changed. Um, it was basically, go home, read the book, contact the MS Society, and uh, deal with it. And um, I remember the neurologist said to me, your life's going to change forever now. And I said, well, no, it won't. I'll just go back to work. I was thinking, well, I can't get sick. You know, I've got too many responsibilities. i got a lot to offer in life. I can't get sick. I mean, I was young, you know. I, I was invincible. Getting sick wasn't even a thought in my mind.
3: Stephen hid his symptoms and went back to work at Holden, where he worked in the paint shop. And he got away with it for a while, but soon he started losing his balance. A sneeze would drop him to the ground, and it just couldn't be ignored any longer. And so he told his bosses what was going on. They tried to be supportive, and he kept working for a while, trying not to let on how weak he was feeling. Then one day... It got so bad, he stepped into his office, shut the door, and rang his wife.
4: And I said, look, can you bring up my boss and tell him I've got to be sent home? Um, I'm not feeling too well. And I mean, I could have told my boss myself, but I was too scared to, because I didn't want them to see that there was a problem with me working. And, um, she rang up my boss and said, look, Stephen needs to go home now. He's on more medication and he's sicker. And, um... He
2: automatically sent me home and um,
4: I never went back to work.
2: Some of Carrie Shear's story, The Only Hole in My Life, produced by Tegan Nichols and Selena Shannon and featured on the All the Best podcast. Reply All is a long-running and popular show that shares some great stories stemming from our interactions with technology and internet life. It's been going for nearly five years and over that time has released more than 140 fortnightly episodes. Each one gets millions of downloads. Some past highlights include one of the hosts, uh, Alex Goldman, engaging with a phone scammer in India who's trying to take over his computer. Then he actually flies over to India to meet him. And there's also a recurring segment called Yes, Yes, No, where they try to decode some cryptic tweet or online message for the benefit of their less tech-savvy boss, the CEO of Gimlet Media, Alex Bloomberg. Here's some of another regular section called Super Tech Support, where listeners try to have their weird tech problems solved and answered. And for some reason, Ben can't listen to one of his favourite podcasts, 99% Invisible with Roman Mars, on the car stereo of his Mazda. But why?
8: My best guess is that because I looked at the file sizes, and I listened to things like Hardcore History and, and Blank Check,
9: which have big file sizes... Um, And it's not that. My best guess is maybe he's using some sort of weird audio codec that interacts strangely with my system, but I really couldn't
5: tell you, so I don't know. Ben thinks that because Roman's voice is so, like, warm and close in his podcasts, uh, maybe he's doing something specific and technical to the files to achieve that? That would be my actual guess. It's
9: like, it's like a... There's something about the actual kind of file, the way that Roman is putting, is converting his podcast to an MP3, that's just like too complicated for Ben's
5: car system. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, these are the two constants in his problem. One is the podcast, it's always the same podcast, and the other is that it's always the same radio. I was like, maybe he just has like a bad radio. But even if it's a bad radio, it's
9: still interesting, because like, why is this radio bad only with 99% visible?
5: Not only that. But... We got another email from another person experiencing exactly the same problem with exactly the same podcast. That is so weird. Um. All right. So I have to figure this out. Okay, cool. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Um, it yeah, is a uh, so. pleasure to hear your voice. Not on a podcast. Yes.
8: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm me as well. I was very uh, delighted to get your email. Are
5: uh, are you are, are you totally in the dark as to why I would reach out to you? Totally. Well, so I told Roman why I was calling him, and I told him about what was going on with Ben's car. There's one that causes his car stereo to freeze
8: shut down, and restart.
5: And Roman had actually heard about this problem from other listeners.
8: Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, We got some details for it a few times from a few different people, but um, I've never really figured it out.
5: All Roman knows is that in some cars, Bluetooth plus car radio plus 99% invisible causes everything to break. But he has no idea why. So... I ran Ben's theory by him. He's like, well, Roman obviously cares about the uh, sort of texture of the sound. Maybe he's doing something very specific to his files. And I'm curious, like, no. what, is, what is your setup like? Do you have a, a strange microphone of some kind?
8: No, I mean, we have um, a couple. I use like a shotgun mic in the studio. But you're not using some kind of special encoding settings that are different from the
5: rest of Radiotopia?
8: no. No,
5: Roman said that he had a theory that he's actually pretty confident about, which is the thing that makes his podcast unusual is that it uses the percent sign. The percent sign
9: as in the percent sign 99% invisible. Yeah. Oh,
5: he was like, it must just not play well with the stereo for some reason.
9: So it's like, because the stereo can also display the name of the podcast. There's something about just there being a symbol where it doesn't expect there to be a symbol where it, breaks
5: yeah and it really bums roman out honestly he's been hearing about it for years from other people who are not ben but like what can he do about it he's not going to change the name of the podcast
8: you know like i would love it to be fixed and i really if somebody's a fan of the show i really hate for them not to be able to hear it like i i, I wish it could be better but I, I think i recognize the futility of me fighting it i think is the thing.
5: i feel like a primary fundamental tenet of super tech support is realizing that something is futile, and well over, well outside of our capability, and putting on a football helmet and running headfirst into it anyway.
8: Well, I mean, if you solve it, I would be really grateful. It's just it's it just like when it, it just seemed like these this is one of those things where all these technologies are butting up against each other, and all I am is some little bit of grit that gets caught between the gears of, you know, tech companies, you know, not knowing how to pass things off and talk to each other. That's what I feel like I am.
5: The irony of this was crazy making. Like 99% visible, a podcast dedicated to explaining the beauty of good design, that is the one podcast that breaks when you try and play it on Ben's Mazda. It just felt like an imbalance in the universe that I had to correct. And Roman's theory about the percent sign, it felt really plausible to me. So I thought I'd start there. And I figured, like, if the percent sign is giving the car trouble because it's a special character, other special characters should break the car too. So I just wanted to test that theory.
9: Basically, you're thinking, like, classic tech support problem. Like, you have to... Replicate the glitch to understand it to solve it.
5: Exactly. So I started thinking about other special characters. Like, you know, what about like the carrot or the curly brackets or whatever? The curly brackets? You know, the curly brackets oh, yeah, right yeah. next to the
9: P. Yeah, they look like they'd be music notation.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay. So we wanted to make a podcast that would break his stereo. And to do that, we devised a test. Uh huh. Who's we? Me. Uh, Most of the team, to be honest. Okay. It was me, Tim, Anna, Fia, Emmanuel, Shruthi, Damiano. I was about to make fun of you guys because I was like, oh,
9: why does it take that many people to make a podcast? But it's like literally it takes that many people to make this podcast, so why wouldn't
5: it? (laughs) Also, we didn't make one podcast. How
9: many podcasts did you make?
5: Well, let's just start at the beginning. Okay. So the first first podcast we made is called uh, Carrot Space Carrot. You know, the carrot, which the is carrot, the, the, uh, the
9: little pointy, the pointy upwards arrow. Yeah. Okay. It's called carrot space carrot.
5: Mm-hmm. Whose job was it
9: to make the podcast art? Uh, it was mine. Okay. Oh, that's pretty nice. It's like a child's drawing of like a Bugs Bunny carrot. And then in the background, there's a planet. Oh, I get it. It's like carrots and space. I'm just going to play it for you. Okay. Oh God, we are in Alex Coleman territory. That's <laughs> That's synth.
5: Hello, Hello. Welcome, welcome to the, to the, the carrot, carrot Space Carrot, carrot, carrot podcast. podcast. I recorded this in my attic.
9: I feel like this is the ASMR that, like, printers listen to when they're trying to go to sleep at night.
5: <laughs> the, atomic the atomic red, red carrot, carrot has, has slim roots, roots that travel forward, forward through, time. through time. You're describing what? The atomic red carrot. I hate time, time produces <laughs> docus, docus Carota. Current. Or Queen Anne's Lace. lace. Don't you just feel, like, (laughs) relaxed? No, I don't feel relaxed. How do you feel? I feel like a robot's
9: trying to mug me. (laughs) Like a robot's trying to hypnotize me to go to sleep so it can mug my data.
5: Queen Anne's Lace annihilates Annihilates. negative Queen Anne's Lace. I think I've had enough of this podcast. (laughs) Okay. So, we made this podcast. We uploaded it to podcast apps and to an RSS feed. Uh Uh-huh. We gave it to Ben. Uh Uh-huh. And I asked him to try it in his car. Go ahead and listen. And we'll see if it breaks your uh,
8: car stereo. All righty, let's do it. And play. Hello. Hello. Welcome to
5: the Carrot space. <laughs> <laughs> Can you look at your screen and see how this is affecting your stereo?
9: So, I have to tell you, it's, uh, um, it is functioning completely normally. Interesting.
5: It also means it's not filtering for the quality of podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) So then we wanted to make a podcast to test the less than symbol, the tilde, which is the symbol that means approximately, and the greater than symbol. Okay. I'm just going to play you the
9: beginning. Okay. Uh, That's jaunty.
1: Hi, this is Samin Nasrat. Welcome to Greater Than, Less Than,
9: Approximately. You got Samin Nasrat to make your <laughs> fake podcast?
5: Yes. Jesus. Samin wrote the book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and uh, she also has a Netflix show by the same name. Such a waste of
1: talent. <laughs> Today, I'm joined by a cooking noob, Alex Goldman. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you could be here. You got We're her to teach you cooking? I've been trying to learn cooking from a book what for a like a year. A berry clafouti is basically a pancake you. with berries in it. But instead of g- being cooked on the stove, it's cooked in the oven. Okay. Do you feel she like you, you do this? that with
5: me today? I feel very excited. Well. For a Mazda? What you have to understand about this is this isn't your average cooking show. Because the only way that she could give me instructions is by telling me the ingredients right. were less than, In approximately, or greater than a... A... I hate My heart so... It's just such waste. Less than, approximately, or greater than some uh, other thing. So, uh, let me and find then... an example here.
1: The measurement for the sugar should be about, do you, have you ever had one of those toys that you, you know, those stress balls? Uh, yes. Okay. You should put about a stress ball amount of sugar into the
5: bowl. So you're saying like greater than one of those super balls. This is.
1: Yes. So great. Greater than a super ball. So stupid. Less than <laughs> a
5: softball. Okay.
1: Okay. For the eggs, can you add uh, an amount of eggs that's greater than the number of nipples you have?
5: <laughs> so you're saying, like, less than the sides of a square. Correct. <laughs> anyway, uh, the berry tea I made, as you might imagine, Didn't turn out good. Was not edible. Yeah. So did this break the Mazda? He popped it in his podcast player. All
1: right. Hi, this is Samin Nosrat. Welcome to Greater Than, Less Than Approximately.
8: It seems to be working just fine.
2: Okay. Some of the Roman Mars Mazda virus, episode 140 of Reply All from Gimlet Media, hosted by PJ Vogt and Alex Goldman. (laughs) Do you believe in aliens or doubt that the moon landings ever took place? Me neither. But I didn't let that stop me from enjoying this paranormal life. It's a funny, slightly silly show where two self styled experts on the paranormal, Rory Powers and Kit Greer, cast a sceptical, jokey eye over some of the outlandish claims and otherworldly accounts out there, and consider whether they might just possibly have some basis in reality. In past episodes, they've tackled such major stories as Bigfoot, the lost city of Atlantis, and of course, the axe wielding Goat Man. Here's another case of the paranormal I hadn't really heard about before That of a half-rabbit, half-man creature That may or may not have started killing people more than a century ago The year is 1904 in, Diving right in there, okay. In
10: Clifton, Virginia You ever been to Virginia? I've never been to Virginia Okay Residents of Fairfax County are mad Mad and worried As the population of the area has boomed, the local asylum prison has been seen as more and more out of place. It's pretty simple. Families in the area, they don't want those crazy criminals around their families. You can imagine the talk on the
6: streets. We don't like those crazy people out in the insane asylum messing around with our town. Get those loons out of this town.
10: Can't they go somewhere else? the townspeople got their way eventually and after months and months of campaigning and rallying signatures it was settled the inmates of clifton's asylum would be transferred to a different facility leaving the sleepy town in peace once and for all okay or was it oh and on the day they closed the rusty doors of that asylum for the last time they slowly boarded every inmate onto buses headed to their new home Fifteen trucks lined up in the yard. Officers pacing up and down the outside, counting heads. All right, head out. They chug up the road in a convoy. While at the new facility, officers start pulling inmates off the trucks, marching them single file inside. Well, that's the last of them. No, no, no,
6: there's more. We had another driver. Look, the the whole convoys here, they came together. There were fifteen trucks. I count only fourteen here. Crap. They must have got broken down and left behind. Ah oh, hell, turn one of these trucks around and find
10: them, will you? They double back on themselves, retracing the route along the road. And before long, they find the 15th convoy.
6: There's that son of a bitch.
10: It's a wreck. On its side, wheels busted, smoke pouring out. My god. The driver is slumped over. Dead. <gasps> He's dead. Some inmates inside the back. Also dead. They're all dead. They must have hit someone or something on the road, but the officers knew there was not a second to lose.
6: Listen up, motherfuckers. There are escaped men from that convoy. Find them. Now, dead or alive. Kids giving me the hand signal to stop it, but I'm going to keep on improving because I feel like I got a real grasp on this. Look. I kissed my wife this morning and left for this job. It's not an easy too job, but I will murder any man, woman, or child detail. that gets in my way. Off script. Does that make off me the story. crazy one and they're absolutely sane? Off Quite possibly. I really wish you would. Say but it. that's why they call me Lex this guy, Shotgun. Not his name. Blast. Bad name.
10: Move out. Yes, Lex, sir. They run out into the surrounding wilderness, listening for absolutely anything. Luckily, they managed to corral most of the inmates back to the site of the crash. Got him. But at this point, it's dusk, and they have to call off the hunt before it gets too
6: dangerous. It's too dark. I'm scared of that. Lex Shotgun Blast is scared of the dark. Does that make me crazy? That's how he ends all his conversations. Am I the crazy one here? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not it's not rhetorical, completely serious.
10: Does that make me crazy? Should I be out there in the woods with those guys? Was I the one that crashed the bus? Who knows? (laughs) He's got blood in his hands. (laughs) Forget it. We'll start looking again in the morning. Poor son of a bitch will probably get himself killed by then anyway. Well, morning came, and there was still one prisoner missing, with no traces. And there was no trace the next day either. Authorities kept a lookout, but Hmm. he had successfully escaped. Nonetheless, residents of Fairfax County slept soundly, knowing that Clifton Asylum was empty and its door locked for good. They felt safe. That is, until a few weeks later. A mother and child are walking along a wooded path. The woman lets out a scream. The kid looks around, but their mom covers their eyes before they can see. The corpse of a dead rabbit, skinned, with chunks missing, hanging tied from a tree. The problem was, this started happening more and more. Word was spreading throughout the town. What's more, word was spreading about the crash and the missing inmate, too.
6: This increased pressure on local police to search the woods again. So What we're seeing here is, I'm going to go ahead and assume this escaped man is now in the woods, living off of the wilderness.
10: Yeah, pretty much.
6: Because this is, you know, if, he's, if it's you see a dead rabbit skinned alive, that's pretty creepy. Dead rabbit skinned <clears throat> alive hanging from a tree, that moves into the survival category. That yeah. is no longer scary. Right. Chunk's missing. He's eaten him. He's chowed down. Obviously. A little bit.
10: I guess. Like a bit of it. So the police split up and head out to try and find who was doing this. They might have wished it was a wild animal, but just as you say, animals can't tie knots or use rope. So it probably wasn't. It was probably a person. Right. They paced nervously, but eventually the officers heard,
11: Over here!
10: They came running.
6: Please tell me that was an officer and not the sound of a... Okay, it's an officer. Okay.
10: (laughs) They couldn't believe it. Hanging from a railroad bridge near Colchester Road, the mutilated body of a missing person. Whoa! Marcus Walster, done just like the bunnies. In fact, this incident caused the bridge to be named Bunnyman Bridge. Needless to say, officials now had a murder case on their hands and they had a prime suspect. The missing inmate, Douglas J. Griffin.
6: The notorious bunny eater, Douglas J. Griffin.
10: <laughs> but what they didn't have was any clue to his whereabouts. They'd already tried and failed to find him even before the murder.
6: All right, look, I'm going to save these these pigs a lot of time, all right? <laughs> you go to the nearest pet store and buy a box of rabbits. You mm-hmm. set those bunnies loose in the woods with ch- um, tags on, around their necks. It's 1904. Shit. All right. Wow. So I guess they didn't have pet
10: shops then. Yeah, fine. fine. So you get wild rabbits, put chips in their necks.
6: Yeah, You have to get the wild ones and then track the chips. Okay. To find this guy. Good idea. Boom. Alternate plan. Fill the rabbits with dynamite. You wait till this sick son of a bitch shows up and tries to string one up and kabam. Alternate plan. Dress officers as rabbits. I like where your head's at, Mulvenna. You know who agrees with you? Lex, shotgun blast. (laughs) I like where your head's at, kid.
10: Where is this bastard now? Who knows what he could do next? Now, at this point in the story, the line between fact and legend becomes very blurry. So I now give you, Rory, the power to determine how this story ends. Legend. You're the police chief. Oh, okay. Lex. Shotgun blast. Shotgun blast.
6: Lex blast, my friends.
10: Pretty long. You're the police chief. Do you... A. Call in support from Fairfax County. Start a large-scale armed search for the bastard before he can strike again. Or B. Conserve efforts. Wait for him to make his next move, relying on a slip-up to bust the perp.
6: This is cool. So are these different ways the stories were told? Yes. And I'm choosing which option we want to explore. Yes. Let's go hunt this son of a bitch. <laughs> alright <laughs>
10: That's right, of course you're gonna track him down. So you radio into headquarters, and before long you've got armed backup, and you're marching through that forest. Sure enough, you catch a glimpse of the sick f- <laughs> You and your boys, run and gun, time crisis style. Try to take out his legs before he escapes. But right before you do, you hear an oncoming train about to pass under Bunny Man Bridge. This is in- That's when the Bunny Man leaps in front of it, smooshed instantly. <laughs> As you recoil in horror, you hear the laugh of the bunny man echo throughout the woods. <laughs> you receive a phone call from one of the guys at the asylum. Hey, just returning your call about the background of the murder suspect. He was sent down for murdering his whole family. On Easter Sunday.
6: Bryce. Obviously, this is the legend, right? Because who, who's telling this story? That they saw a man jump, a bunny man jump, hop in front of a train. The police. The police told this, did they? Yeah. Do you have a name for this policeman?
10: Storyline B. <laughs> of course, you're gonna bide your time. Right. You think the county feds are gonna send a death squad into that forest? That's right, we wait until the bunny man strikes again. Next thing you know, it's October 31st, also known as Halloween and some teens are hanging out drinking and getting frisky over at bunny man bridge. I guess they thought it would be cool. Except, uh uh-oh, bunny man doesn't take kindly to
6: teens hanging out at his bridge. I don't know anything about this bunny man, by the way. It went from finding a couple rabbits to all of a sudden he killed a man. Has he done anything else? How do they know it's the bunny man?
10: Yeah, he hasn't done anything else.
6: Oh, right. So just the one murder? Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's pretty bad.
10: Yeah, the bunny man doesn't take kindly to teens hanging out the bridge. Next thing, the teens are skinned and strung up like old Marcus Walster over there, and you're taking the rap as police chief. So basically, in one version of the story, the bunny man becomes a Halloween curse of sorts, and in the other, he commits suicide, but in a kind of weird paranormal way, where his laugh echoes out into the forest.
2: Right, that's how I want to go. Some of episode 67 of This Paranormal Life, called Murderous Bunny Man Escapes Asylum, presented by Rory Powers and Kit Greer. And the show recently won the award for Best Entertainment Podcast at the British Podcast Awards. Jaws, Star Wars, Psycho, Jurassic Park. The soundtrack show looks at the vital role that music plays in some of our favourite films. This is from the first of three episodes devoted to the first part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, from 2001, with a film score written by composer Howard Shaw. The Fellowship of the Ring,
12: or Fellowship for short, is a very different kind of movie than any we've looked at so far, for several reasons. Reason number one. While we have looked at movies that kick off trilogies in the past, this movie, and in many ways its film score is inseparable from the other two films that follow it. So much so that all three of these films were announced at the same time, were advertised in the same trailer, and were released one year apart from each other. So even though we're beginning our dive into Fellowship of the Ring, we're really going on an adventure through Middle-earth. Middle-earth, you say? What, uh... Yes, the source material of Fellowship, and this is reason number two for why it's such a different movie, comes from novels written by J.R.R. Tolkien decades ago. Fellowship was published in 1954, as was The Two Towers, the second volume. It arrived later that year. And finally, the third volume of The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, was published in October 1955. Together, these three volumes are known as The Lord of the Rings. Their influence weighs heavily on the fantasy genre. Lord of the Rings became immensely popular in the 1960s and has remained so ever since, ranking as one of the most popular works of fiction of the 20th century, judged by both sales and reader surveys. The Lord of the Rings started as a sequel to Tolkien's popular children's book, The Hobbit, published in 1937. But Lord of the Rings quickly grew in depth and darkness during the writing process into what we know today. And in order to talk about the movie and its music, we need to discuss the world of the Lord of the Rings, called Middle-earth, first. For starters, it's a vast world with thousands and thousands of years of backstory. That's right, thousands. It's a fictional land filled with forests, rivers, kingdoms, mountains, lakes, seas, caves, and fields. With elves, Dwarves, wizards, goblins and orcs, creatures of all kinds, kingdoms of men, and, well, hobbits. More on them later. Fellowship begins in what is known as the Third Age of Middle-earth. Each age in the Middle-earth fiction contains multiple millennia of history. Fellowship, for example, doesn't begin until around mm, 3001 or 3004 in the Third Age, or 1404 by Shire Reckoning. Again, more on that later. So explaining all of that in just three movies, not to mention condensing it down as an historical introduction to a music podcast, is a daunting task. Seems impossible, actually. But what we're going to discuss today is just how Fellowship managed to do it. Not just with its brilliant introduction to Middle Earth during the film's prologue, but with Howard Shore's entire approach to its film score. Howard Shore, the composer of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, is a Canadian composer born in Toronto, Ontario in 1946. When he was 13, he met Lorne Michaels at Summer Camp, the future creator of Saturday Night Live. After attending Berklee College of Music, my alma mater as well, Shore played in a jazz fusion ensemble called Lighthouse, a very successful band that actually opened for Jimi Hendrix at one point. This was before he started working again with Lorne Michaels as the musical director of Saturday Night Live from 1975 to 1980. And Howard Shore is credited with writing both the intro and closing music of that show, as well as writing music for multiple famous sketches. Live from New York, it's Saturday Night!
8: (laughs) NBC Saturday Night. Starring the number of the primetime players, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, James Curtin, Garrett Morris, Marie Newman,
4: Gilda Radner. With Howard Shore and his All Nurse band. After
12: 1980, Shore began writing film scores, most notably for David Cronenberg on movies like The Fly for director Jonathan Demme on Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia, and director David Fincher on Seven, and later, Panic Room. But after scoring so many dark films like the ones mentioned above, Howard Shore was announced as the composer on the upcoming Lord of the Rings films. This was a move that surprised some people. The Rings movies were undoubtedly going to be huge blockbuster affairs, filled with action. Yes, right? I mean, if we're in the late 90s, we have some expectations here about what these film scores are probably going to be. So, how did Howard Shore get the gig? Well, here's what we know Shore was a huge fan of Lord of the Rings, especially in the 1960s. He read and reread the volumes when he was touring on the road, presumably with Lighthouse. One day, in the late 1990s, he got a call from director Peter Jackson about the Lord of the Rings films that Jackson was making down in New Zealand. Well, Shore immediately flew to New Zealand to check out what Jackson was cooking up, which, by the way, New York to New Zealand is no short plane flight to take for an interview. Shore said, quote, I received a phone call directly from Peter. He was in New Zealand. And it was a fascinating project that he described. I journeyed down to New Zealand after the call. The level of filmmaking was amazing and inspiring. I wanted to be a part of it. End quote. Oh, to be a fly on the wall during that conversation. I can't help but imagine that it was Shore's intense love for the books that won him the gig. I'm sure he bonded over a shared passion for Tolkien's work with Jackson and his creative team. Shore described his musical writing process during the creation of the score for Rings, saying, quote, I always had the book as a guide. It was always open on my desk, and as I was creating thematic ideas and motifs for the film, I was always rereading the book, all the time, but especially when I was scoring specific scenes. I would go back to the book and reread it to gain insight into the story. So, this brings me to reason number three why Fellowship of the Ring is so different than any other blockbuster movie we've covered so far. Its film score is very different. How? Well, in my opinion, Howard Shore didn't just write music for Peter Jackson's 2001 film, A Fellowship. No. With Jackson's support, Shore was actually scoring Middle Earth itself. He was writing definitive music for the characters, locations, and most importantly, the many different cultures of Middle Earth as well as synchronizing a film score to picture. And my friends, you can absolutely hear it in his music. Much of the shorthand for Middle Earth that we experience in Jackson's fellowship comes from the descriptive, rich nature of Howard Shore's music. It informs us not only dramatically of what's going on in the plot, but through music, we get an immediate and visceral sense of what the various cultures and characters in Middle-earth are all about.
11: The music score on any film is obviously vitally important because it totally guides your emotions when you're watching the film. I mean, the actors can do their job, the director can do their job in terms of creating a certain amount of mood and emotion, but obviously music is, like, so strong in evoking what you should be feeling at any given time. Peter and Fran were very clear that they wanted someone that would collaborate with them, that would be willing to invest the time to develop themes and to help us even in production. Because more so than just scoring the film, I wanted the music to reflect Tolkien. I wanted the music to also bring the world of Middle-earth to life. So Howard agreed to come down and meet with Peter. And he visited the set and he visited the set again a few months months later and he was just started to immerse himself in the world very, very quickly once, once he'd agreed to do the film. You
7: could see the depth of the creativity of what they were trying to create in New Zealand and the passion for it. And I think it was on that very first trip that I decided that I definitely wanted to do the film. It seemed like a hugely daunting task to do three films.
11: Normally, on movies, composers might work for six or eight weeks. But Howard was with us um, from very early on in the shoot. So, you know, by the time The Fellowship of the Ring had been released, Howard had been on the film for nearly two years. Tolkien spent 14 years writing Lord of the Rings. And you're now writing a musical image, creating
7: the music, a musical mirror, if you will, uh, to, to his writing. And I mentioned this so so often, um, you know, even in in other discussions about feeling like Frodo, and I really did feel like that, that I had this amazing uh, journey to take, and I had the ring in my vest pocket, and you were chosen, now you're going to write the music to Lord of the Rings, and uh, you had to do it.
11: It was more than what we could have ever dreamt, really, because, you know, Howard has become part of our family, part of our team on this film, and he is totally devoted... to to somehow um, give the music a cultural significance uh, a
7: section of the encyclopedia of moria just so you to give you some idea of this particular world that we're trying to create uh, moria it's in the year 1697 at the second age of the sun
11: so that it's doing two jobs at the same time and one it's underscoring the film it's providing an emotional link a bridge between the movie and the audience and it's drawing the audience in but it's doing it in such a way that it's also telling you a lot about the cultures of this world. The Lord
7: of the Rings films tell a story, and the music describes the world surrounding that story. Themes absorb cultural details, imply dramatic connections, and reflect the development of the story's characters and ideas. There are almost as many themes as there are such elements. Over 50 leitmotifs are used in the piece. The History of the Ring theme, just one of several melodies assigned to the ring, forms the first notes of the symphony and could be said to be the central theme of the entire score. It rises and falls in a breath-like pattern to give the ring a sense of consciousness and purpose.
2: Some of The Fellowship of the Ring, the music part one from the soundtrack show hosted by David Collins. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now. As well as that, we've been listening to This Paranormal Life. Reply all and all the best. And next time you hear something good, do please share it with me at pods at rnz.co.nz. Until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you.